Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 351. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Doubleheader special number 17 this week for you folks, featuring writer Camille Greep with two very cool stories, The Spider and One Night in Bangkok. Camille lives and writes wherever she happens to be, but mostly near Seattle, Washington. Her writing is colored by a persistent tendency to anthropomorphize everything from cars to cows. Her nonfiction work appears monthly at Used Furniture Review, and her first novel, Letters to Zell, is forthcoming this summer from 47 North. You can find more about Camille at www.camillegreep.com, or follow her on Twitter at Camille the Greep. Stick around after our stories this week to hear a little bit from Camille herself, with some author's eye background on these tales. For now, though, let's get to the stories. Without further ado, we bring you The Spider, followed by One Night in Bangkok, by Camille Greep. The Spider, by Camille Greep. One. In the morning, you open your eyes to find a spider idling on the ceiling above your bed. Two, from leg to leg, the spider is the size of your palm, Tegenaria duelica, giant house spider. Three, you slam your right arm across the bed in the same protective motion made for the benefit of car passengers during a surprise application of the brakes. The comforter deflates with a whoomph, wafting dust and sandalwood and feathers. The bed is empty, your partner's at work en route to the gym on the freeway in Boston, not there. Four, you curse your partner, you curse Boston. Five. When you were small, you believed spiders were born from bathtubs because one or two were always located in the sunken jacuzzi of your childhood home. To this day, you distrust faucets and drains. Bathtubs require rigorous attention, as you've now learned, do ceilings. 6. It is possible that you are still dreaming. Good morning, you rasp. While disappointing, the spider's silence is not necessarily a conclusive result. In fact, you often dream of voiceless spiders in forgotten rooms and secret passageways. Their webs, their legs, their jaws represent something dramatic in your subconscious, though you've yet to isolate the cause. To finalize the morning's corporeality, you squinch your eyes shut for as long as you deem safe yet effective. You open them again. Seven. Bad. It is still there. Good. It has not yet dropped on you. Eight. Keeping the spider in your peripheral vision, you inch yourself to the right, to the middle of the bed, over a cold, partner-shaped indentation, and to the other edge. One pointed toe is stretched downwards until it reaches the smooth floorboards. You inhale through your nose and dismount with a swift, twisting motion. Nine. You realize you are naked. You cover your body with your arms and hands, shielding yourself from eight probing eyes. 10. 
jumping spiders have superlative arachnid eyesight due to the swiveling telephoto lenses in their eye stalks. You are pleased that this spider is not a jumping spider, and not only due to the visual acuity. 11. T. Duelica is known to meander through the house in the closing notes of summer and overture of fall in search of a mate. Otherwise, they remain proximal to narrow, disorganized webs in rarely disturbed locations. You wonder if this spider belongs to the molting skins in the VCR cabinet. You shiver, remembering the little collection of not-quite-spiders and how you ran to find something long to poke them with. 12. The spider skitters three or four inches toward the windows. You retreat backwards to the closet. 13. Your arsenal, three hat boxes containing 34 years' accumulation of bizarre haberdashery, three suitcases, two if partner is in Boston, 30 pairs of shoes, two lamps, one Kleenex box, six hairbands, two economics magazines, one if partner's in Boston, and one Vuvuzela. 14. You don a sweatshirt and pants with ribbing at the waists and ankles, respectively. Nothing too loose to prevent in-crawling, but substantial enough to guard from T. Dwellica's unique ability to break human skin. You cinch your sturdiest platform shoes to stockinged feet in order to better reach the ceiling. You add an old riding helmet to the ensemble, just in case. 15. One economics magazine, two hairbands, and one vuvuzela are repurposed. 16. You crane your neck to see the spider from under the brim of your riding helmet. You skirt the bed until you reach what feels to be a good tactical position, and you take aim with your weapon. 17. I'm really very sorry, you say, but this is my house. 18. Giant house spiders live out entire lives in their birthplace and cannot survive the elements. If taken outside, they are fast enough to beat a person back into the house. Wikipedia lists their top speed as 1.73 feet per second. 19. You close your eyes and visualize leaving the room for a cup of coffee. When you return, yours is now a bedroom without a palm-sized spider on the ceiling. The palm-sized spider is elsewhere, unaccounted for. It finds a mate, builds a narrow, disorganized web in the ceiling above your bed, and procreates. Thousands of potentially palm-sized spiders greet you each and every morning. A few leave inspirational messages in their webs. Some human. 20. You close your eyes and visualize striking the spider. It dodges your blow, flies down from the ceiling, blinds you with green venom, binds your legs with silk, and calls for reinforcements. You reach for your cell phone, but it has been spirited away. The police arrive. Are you some sort of monster? They ask. This spider's family has lived here for 60 years. And what in the hell are you wearing? 21. You close your eyes and visualize striking the spider. Don't. It shrieks. I haven't finished my novel yet. 22. You close your eyes again and visualize striking the spider. It dances around your blows in eight tiny tap shoes, singing Mr. Bojangles. A talent agent appears with a contract. Soon after, you attend its premiere on Broadway. You are given free tickets and a front row seat. You throw red roses. 23. 
You open your eyes and strike the spider. It falls gutted and curled onto the gray sheets below. It looks much smaller now. You collect it with a Kleenex and flush it down the toilet. 24. You look up at the smear on the ceiling. You are a murderer. An inverse smear on the economics magazine will alert the world of your cruelty. 25. A sorrowful buffoon in a tiny riding helmet stares back from the mirror on the wall. Bleary eyes well up as it mourns for the loss of Spider Hemingway, Spider Hines. 26. But you were swift and merciful, resourceful, self-reliant. You made your own weapon, for Christ's sakes. 27. And there is nothing you can't do today. You strip the sheets, restack the hat boxes, vacuum the VCR cabinet, fix the faucet in the bathtub. You buy yourself a plane ticket to Boston. You don't pack the economics magazine. One Night in Bangkok by Camille Griep. The fiery orange sun hung high over the Bangkok skyline to the south. Professor Tina Montry rearranged her skirt and adjusted the alligator skin briefcase on her lap, which held the presentation and research notes from her talk at the university. A breeze stirred on the back of her neck, warm and relaxing. She could almost fall asleep if it weren't for her precarious perch at the top of a tree. Tina would have climbed down from the tree if a crocodile wasn't swimming beneath it, one yellow eye trained on her well-developed calf muscle. And the croc wouldn't be swimming underneath the tree if Bangkok hadn't flooded. And she'd be at the airport already if she had just gone to the hotel to pack instead of taking a tuk-tuk around the city for a last few hours of sightseeing. And now, who knew when she'd get home? If she'd get home. Fish, flowers, park benches, teddy bears, coffee cups, sticks, brooms, rice containers, all floated by in the roiling waters. Still the swimming sack of teeth waited. The only sound Tina could hear was water, swift and pregnant with debris. She clicked her heels together. What did she have to lose? But instead of being transported to L.A., her right shoe fell into the water below. She'd only meant to close her eyes for a few moments, but the sky was streaked with sunset when she opened them again. She sensed remembering where she was and grabbed the slippery bark of the tree, her remaining shoe splashing into the murk below. The splash was followed by a chomp and a slap. She peered down at the water. She was thirsty. She wanted her shoes back. The crocodile, she supposed, had other plans. Hey! Tina shook her briefcase. See this? Go away or I'll make you into a pair of gloves. I highly doubt that, said the croc. She must not have woken fully from her nap. Still, she answered, you ate my shoe. It dropped on my head. Because you're sitting under my tree. Why don't you go away? Oh, is that what you'd like? I myself would like a bite to eat. I want to get down. I want to go home. I think our goals are mutually exclusive. Tina shifted on the branch. 
Maybe, said the croc. Maybe not. Maybe I don't eat you if you grant me a wish instead. Just what she needed, a talking crocodile with demands. I'm not a genie, I'm a woman. Hmm, pity. But women are delicious, so either way I'm ahead. Fine. When she woke up, she'd make sure to write this dream down. What is it you want? I want to live in Florida. Florida? But why? Well, I have a lot of cousins there, and I'd like to spend some time at the Magic Kingdom to visit the Pirates of the Caribbean. We have one of those in California, too. Well, California's no good, said the crocodile. I'm trying to get away from the smog. Ugh, okay, I'll take you all the way to Florida, but I'm afraid I can't set you loose in a theme park. Well, that's a start. To compromise. By the time Tina climbed down the tree, the floodwaters were only ankle-deep. The croc sat at the base of the tree with a ballet flat hanging from each of his long incisors. Thank you, said Tina. She picked the shoes off of his yellowed teeth and drained them of the detritus collecting in the toes. You'll have to switch places with my briefcase so that I can carry you. Can you curl yourself up small? The crocodile began to turn around in circles, faster and faster, until he curled himself into the size of a tote bag. Here, now you have to swallow all my things. She fed the crocodile her presentation files, her thumb drives, her leftover fried rice, her sunglasses, and her lucky pen. She fished a fueng malai, shedding jasmine and marigold petals from the base of the tree and looped it over the croc's snout. Bite down, she said, and he grabbed a hold of the garland and tucked his snout into a pocket near his belly. Tina picked up the croc, now a lumpy flower-handled tote bag, and squished off in search of a way to the airport. She didn't see her empty briefcase float away, or the happy tail that sprung from its handle. A fur-clad tourist next to Tina woke her up when the seatbelt sign came on for the descent into Miami. My, what a wonderful bag you have, said the woman. Did you get it in Thailand? Tina nodded and patted the bag's warm, clammy exterior. She hated to leave the crocodile here in Florida when he made such a nice bag. After all, who else could claim to have such a unique piece? Maybe she'd just keep him a month or so until she could find a nice preserve. He could eat all the lunch leftovers she never finished. Can I see it for a moment? asked the woman. Oh, I don't think that's a good idea, said Tina, her thumb tracing one of the curled yellow teeth just under the garland handle. It was indeed a unique bag. Well, it's not as if I'm going to take it anywhere, the woman huffed to herself, gesturing to the airplane cabin. Oh, no, I didn't mean... Tina felt queasy. It's just that all of my presentation notes are inside, and I'm very protective of them. Oh, well, I can understand that, said the woman. You never know who you might be dealing with. I suppose I'd never let anyone try on my leopard coat. She ran her hands down her sleek torso. Yeah, that's probably a good idea, said Tina, hugging the bag to her middle. She leaned toward the man on the aisle until she noticed his snakeskin belt. Perhaps she'd stop in Miami 
after all. Something takes a part of me, something lost and never seen. Every time I start to believe, something is raped and taken from me. Feeling like a freak on a leash, feeling like I have no release. Many times have I felt diseased, nothing in my life is free, is free. Hello, fellow strange readers. My name is Camille Greep, and I'm a strange author with a strange name. Thanks so much for listening to this Drabblecast doubleheader featuring two of my humorous flash pieces, The Spider and One Night in Bangkok. I wrote these pieces in 2012, during a time where life was being kind of lifeish, and I was concurrently working on a flash cycle reinterpreting nursery rhymes because I thought they'd be a nice distraction. With both of these pieces, as with most of my writing, they're meant to have a second layer underneath the sugary entertainment icing. In both pieces, we're left with protagonists who may or may not be able to look themselves in a mirror. The Spider was written in autumn, when our house in the Pacific Northwest is frequently visited by the giant house spider. While this story is not autobiographical, the dilemma is quite real. One Night in Bangkok was written for my sister-in-law, Sarah, and her fiancé, John, who asked me to write the story set in one of their favorite cities. I sat down to watch some wonderful Thai films that were as whimsical and crazy as they come, and the story was born. Thanks again for listening. Good stuff. Let's close things out this week with our 100-character story winner for the week. By first-time winner, Drew did this with this micro-story here. We found the secrets to eternal life. No more aging, no more death. The only problem now is we are running out of brains. One hundred character stories, not counting spaces. We call them twabbles because we post them out in our Twitter feed at the Drabblecast each week after picking a winner from our forums at forums.drabblecast.org. Try your hand at it; it's good fun. Well, that's our show this week, folks. Special thanks to our episode artist, Alex Claw. Alex is a writer, illustrator, zombie hugger, and lover of all things post-apocalyptic. Occasional book cover artist and gardener as well. You can find his artwork at alex-claw.deviantart.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, I'm Norm Sherman, reminding you, we have one of those in California, too.